I tell you, I think that one of the things I like about the style of ministry that we have here is that it gives God all the freedom to, uh, to change what he wants to change, do what he wants to do. Uh, so many churches, and I've seen this all of my life, they're so rigid into everything that they do that if God wanted to do something, he, he'd have to wait six months just to get on the planning schedule of it. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate how the Lord uh, has orchestrated not only where we're at as a church, but where we're at in the open opportunities that God has given us, but then where we're at in the Bible at the same time. And tying that into the, you know, restructuring of our, our prayer groups and, and redefining that and looking at all the things that God has given us. And as we're closing out this book, we've seen that Paul gives instructions to this church as far as uh, young Timothy that's coming to, to be with them and Paul sending Timothy to them. And Paul tells that church that Timothy uh, is his helper and that uh, they're not to uh, be negative toward Timothy, but they're to help him and not hurt him. And we focused last time on a couple of things that uh, Paul told uh, the church at Corinth and then what he told Timothy. He told the church at Corinth that, that let him come to you without being afraid. And then he told the church at Corinth, let no man despise him. See, Paul's smart enough to know that in this church there were people who didn't like him, Paul. There were people that despised Paul. <clears throat> and you see that throughout underneath of this whole book and even in 2 Corinthians. So he knew what, if they didn't like him and wouldn't accept him, what they were going to try to do to somebody that he sent there. So he makes it very clear. Uh, Paul is someone who, if anything goes wrong... He wants it documented, and I think documentation is always important in dealing with people. He wants to make sure he can pull out the letter and say, what part of this didn't you understand, you see? He's kind of covering Timothy. Yet at the same time, we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, that Paul gives instructions to young Timothy. And he says, let no man despise thy youth. And we, we talked about that. And that sets up for us a tremendous lesson on how God wants to use young men and young ladies. And I showed you last week that uh, God has a special uh, calling for young, young people, something that they can do that older folks cannot do. And uh, a lot of what they are, if they're done right, is infectious to other people. I think it keeps the church young and healthy. You know, there's an old saying that if you've got an old dog and you want to make the dog live longer, get a young pup to hang out with the dog. I believe that's true. And I think that, <clears throat> I think that in a church that keeps the church from getting creaky and old and, you know, become an old folks home is the lifeblood of young men and young ladies who really fire up the thing and keep it going. And, and we all kind of help each other through the thing. And it sets up a tremendous lesson of being young and being used of God. I showed you how that God has a real place for young people in the Lord's work, but we also talked about a couple of vital issues that, that young people need to know. I gave you a great verse, and I hope you marked in your Bible in Proverbs twenty twenty nine where it talked about the glory of young men was their strength, but the beauty of old men was their gray head. And I focused on the fact that young people have the strength to do the work of God on a great high level, but they don't necessarily have the experience of life. And the job of the church is teaching young men and young ladies uh, how to see this and to work on this is, is really key in their life. How many times have we all heard it been said? I've heard it all my life, and I'm sure you had too. 
somebody who's now in their 50s or their 60s looks back at life and is talking to somebody and they say this, if I had only known at 20 what I know today. And then we hear the little phrase that hindsight's always 20-20, perfect vision. And that is so true. It is so true. And we saw that two different aspects of young people uh, and how to view uh, their youth. The first one, as he talked about in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, was let no man despise thy youth, and that's by, by doing dumb things. I think that the number one failure of young people today, young men and young ladies alike, uh, I think the number one failure that they have is they don't learn while they're young to glean everything they can from those that are older. There are some things that I wished I would have gleaned from my father before I lost my father. And there comes a time, folks, when you, and you may have saved parents or lost parents, but if they're good, decent parents, that means you can learn some things from them. Just because they may not have salvation doesn't mean that they don't have some street smarts about life and things on this planet. And I think many times kids, young people, make a, have a mistake uh, that they don't glean from their parents everything they can before they get into life themselves and become parents. Uh, many times parents have told uh, uh, young people before they got married, you shouldn't do this or maybe you even shouldn't get married, or after you get married, maybe you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't buy that, you shouldn't do this. And they're not saying that to us because of the fact that they don't want you to have it. They're saying that because they, they have been through life, they have seen some things that you don't see yet, and they're trying to help you and protect you from that. And I think failure to glean those things, I think it's true. I think it's true within the ministry. The greatest thing I thank God for every day of my life, that God gave me the ability to be smart enough in the time that I was young to realize that I had before me probably one, maybe two of the guys who probably were the greatest minds on the Bible and the ministry. And there was times that I would, I would, I, I, I. I you would, you would call them up and you would ask them questions and you'd try to, when you got into a tough spot, you wasn't sure what to do or you wanted to make sure you did it right. And, you know, those people are gone in your life at some point. You can't just pick up a phone anymore and say, hey, what do I do about this? And the failure of young people, I think it's the number one failure that young people, male and female, have is they don't glean while they're still young from the wisdom of those who have it whether it be about the Bible, whether it be about life, or whether it be about whatever. And I thank God every day of my life, one of the smartest things I ever did was glean from, from Mal Sabaka. Uh, and uh, you know what? I can't call him up on the phone anymore. He's still alive, but uh, there's, it's, it's impossible at this point, as weak as he is. It's, it's, it's gone. It's a gone resource. And, uh, you know, and many times, you know, it's like the old true saying, you don't really... You, sometimes you got to lose something before you really know how valuable it was. And, you know, I, I think that's a, an issue. And I think that that's why young men and young ladies continue to do dumb things. I mean, I know you're young, and I know that that's a, that's a good excuse. <clears> the <throat> Bible tells us, you know, that even in ministry, you, you don't put somebody in that's a novice. They've got to have some experience. But... <clears throat> You know, I think that one of the things that young men and young ladies can do right now while you're young is to learn and to glean everything you can from those around you 
who understand and, and, and make things uh, work and happen the way that they're, they're supposed to. I, I think it's just the way that it is. And then the other thing that he says <clears throat> is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. And this is the second element. And this is where he says, let no man despise him. Tells that to the church at Corinth. And I told you last week that you need to know no matter how good you are, no matter how well you try to be everything and do everything that God wants you to do, there's always going to be God's people out there who want to sandbag you. They want to keep you from, from growing because you're growing past them and they don't want that. That makes them look bad. And you'll find that. We talked about that last week. You know, it's great lessons for every young man and young lady uh, in our church to learn. I really mean that. And I think the, the proof of where you go with the Lord and how well God is able to use you uh, really comes back to how well you're willing to, to learn through your uh, difficulties now and to glean everything that you can and put it in a, a concept where you may not be able to use it right now, but I'm, I guarantee you, you use it down the line someplace. And that's why, you know, if you ever thought about this, this is why uh, in its simplest form, it's so hard for you to win your family to Christ or minister to your family. Uh, because they know more about you than other people do. They've seen you all your life, and they don't respect you. Uh, the Bible tells you that. Jesus himself said, a prophet hath no honor in his own country. And it's a thing where that becomes my favorite phrase, that you become smarter than the problem. And uh, you just, you know, you've got to learn these things. you just got to learn these things. Uh, you know, I can tell you about the Bible, and, and you come over and lay down and, and, and lay it out. When I try to tell my mom something in the Bible, she just looks at me and she says, oh, you're nuts. And, you know, it's, you can't do it. So then I told you that it all talks about uh, three or four people, basically three people groups. He talks about Timothy, who's single. Then he talks about a guy who's older. And then he talks about a couple. And uh, he tells you in no uncertain terms that they are key to his ministry. Now, I told you last week that I'm sure that even though Paul references Timothy, there's probably thousands of young men and young ladies that, that Paul ministered to. And when he talks about these other two people groups, uh, I'm sure that there's literally probably thousands of other people that would fit into this category. But the Bible has a way of taking one particular person and, you know, the example of, of, of in this case, three represent the many that Paul's dealing with. In fact, you'll find in this very chapter that Paul names a lot of other people. But my point to you is this, and, you know, learning your Bible is more than just sitting down and reading it or, or gleaning notes off of some other guy's thoughts, which is really good. You've got to learn to look at things that don't always appear to be right on the surface. In my mind and experience, <clears throat> these three uh, people, we talked about Timothy already, we're going to talk about the other two here today, they really represent to me what makes a healthy, viable ministry and makes it work uh, in a healthy church. And I, I, I invite you to just kind of listen to me today and follow along and watch what I say and see if you don't see the same similarities that I'm talking about here, and you'll see how it works in our own church. Now, I want to read a little farther today in, our, in, in, uh, in uh, Acts or, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And I will, again, pick it up in verse 9. And uh, I want to look at these other people here. 
and then uh, we'll make some comments about it. But uh, let's pick it up in verse 9 here. We've already read this several times, but it kind of goes with the context. Our real text is going to start in verse 12, but let's put it together here. For a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. Now if Timothy come, see that he may be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord as I do. Let no man therefore despise him, but conduct him forth in peace, that he may come unto me, for I look for him with the brethren. As touching our brother Apollos, I greatly desired him to come unto you with the brethren, but his will was not to, uh, at all to come at this time. But he will come when he shall have convenient time. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Let all things be done with charity." I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, that it, the first fruits of Archaea, that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that ye submit yourselves unto such, and that every one helpeth with us that laboreth. I am glad of the coming of Stephanus, and Fortuturus, and Archaeus, which that was lacking on your part they have supplied. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge ye them that are such. The churches of Asia salute you, Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their home. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you for uh, our time today. We pray that you'll uh, take the Word of God and teach us. We thank you for where you brought our church to and for the great host of, of men and women who love you and love this Word and are committed to uh, us fulfilling what you've done for us, given us to commit to. We love you. Pray you'll bless this time now in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen. Now in verse 12, we have our, our second guy. And uh, it says, us touching our brother Apollos. Now I don't know what you know about Apollos. He's not one of the most prominent characters in the Bible. But let me say this to you. Apollos is one of the great studies in the Bible. Not every great study in the Bible is going to jump out at you. And when you look at uh, certain things, at least when I do, you know, I, I want to look more at what just Paul is doing. I want to see who Paul continually references in his life. Because there's going to be keys to that in, in, in what I want to look for uh, as a pastor and in, in what God's given me to do. And the background of Apollos, uh, this guy, uh, he's an, quite an incredible guy. Now, the first time Apollos shows up, and you probably want to look at this, it'll be in Acts chapter 18, verse 24. And uh, this is the first time he shows up in the Bible. <clears throat> and uh, it's interesting to see uh, some things about him. Now, it says in Acts chapter 18, verse 24, And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, <clears throat> being fervent in the Spirit. <clears throat> he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. All right, let's stop right there. Put it into a context. Now, this guy, we know that when we start the beginning of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we basically start with a ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, <clears throat> John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He's born six months before Christ is, and he, he, his ministry <clears throat> takes place six months before Christ's ministry starts. And John the Baptist comes to the nation of Israel. John the Baptist is not preaching salvation by grace. John the Baptist is not preaching, uh, you know, you got to be born again. 
John the Baptist is coming to preach to the nation of Israel that their Messiah has come, and he's telling them that that Messiah is Christ. And that's what his, his mission is, and that's what he does. You know what happened to John the Baptist. The devil intervenes, like we know he does, and John the Baptist gets his head cut off. But Apollos was somebody back then who heard exactly what John was preaching, knew enough about the Old Testament Scriptures. The Bible says he was an eloquent man, fervent in the Scriptures. In other words, he's one of the ones that stayed online with the Bible uh, through the disposition where the Jews were scattered, and now he still got this Bible, believing it, the Old Testament, and he's looking for the Messiah. And when Jesus comes, or John comes, and he's preaching that this is the Messiah, and he offers Israel the baptism of John, which is a baptism not of individual salvation, but a picture of the cleansing of the nation of Israel as a nation, he immediately gets baptized under John's baptism, and he goes on from there. Now, that kind of brings you up to, to where we're at. All right, look at verse 26. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took uh, him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Now, this is a great, 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 great study here because here's a case where Apollos goes into this church Now, this is after the resurrection of Christ. This is some 40 years after he was baptized with John the Baptist. And he walks into this synagogue, which is now a church. They're preaching about, they're there to preach about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And Apollos gets up and says, can I give a testimony? Can I like to say some things? And they say, well, great, brother, go ahead. Immediately, you know what he starts to preach? He says, you all need to be baptized in John's baptism. You need to follow the mind. He hasn't even heard yet that Christ has even died or anything has even changed. And this is where Aquila and Priscilla pull him aside. And look what the Bible says. They explain to him the word of God more, what? Perfectly. They now tell Apollos that, you know what, you got don't work no more. John's baptism preached repentance under Israel, but since that time, you haven't heard the Messiah came, he was rejected, he died on the cross, and now we have moved into the Gentiles taking the gospel, Paul, the gospel. He hadn't heard that. Well, let's follow on here. And when he was disposed to pass through Achaia, the brethren wrote exhorting the disciples to receive him, watch it very carefully now, who when he was come, helped them much which had believed through grace. See that thing? Salvation isn't the same way all through the Bible. That verse tells you right there that those people had received the gospel through grace. Apollos didn't. He got it through John's baptism. But when Aquila and Priscilla pulled him aside, explained it to him, he got it. And then he goes right on with the new message of the gospel just as fervently as he did with what he knew. And the Bible says in verse 28, for he mightily, there it is, he mightily convinced the Jews that publicly showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was Christ. There it is. Now there's an example where Apollos is somebody who comes into this church 
only knowing the baptism of John, which has been out of date now for 40 years. I don't know where he's been, but he has not heard of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so what happens here is they pulled him aside. They explained the Word of God more perfectly. He gets it. And then he moves on, and he has a tremendous, he tremendous, uh, a tremendous following from that point on. Now, uh, in 19.1, we find that right after his conversion here, that he follows Paul down to Corinth. Now, he's not here at, when Paul's writing what we're reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, because Paul says he's going to come when he's more convenient. But he goes down the first time that Paul was there in Acts chapter 19, verse 1. He goes with him. And from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, we see that Paul makes a reference that he had, a, he had some kind of real impact there when he was there. He made a great impression on them, and many of them, I'm sure, in that church stayed straight with the things of the Bible, even though the church was falling apart around them. I think probably Apollos was a great anchor in that church. But I want you to notice something about him. Paul doesn't give that church any instructions that when he comes back, now you make sure you don't despise him. When he comes back, you make sure you listen to what he says and don't make him afraid. He didn't say that here. You know why? Because Apollos is older. He represents our older guy. He'd been around when John was baptizing. Like I said, that's 40 plus years ago. They accept him. Now you want to see this. Catch this. You want to, don't want to miss this. In Acts chapter 18, verse 28, it says, he, For he mightily, mightily convinced the Jews. Why? How did he convince them? Why did he convince them? Because he'd been there from John the Baptist. He had followed Christ from the beginning, from John. He'd come up through the crucifixion, and now he's moved into the church age. Some 40-plus years of experience that he had. Brother, he, he had some perspective and the Bible already tells us that he knew the Bible. So when he stands up and speaks, he's not like somebody that just got saved a week ago. This is somebody that can step back and look at the absolute, complete perspective of Christ's ministry. He saw John and believed. He had come up through that period of time. Now he understands about the crucifixion. And now he realizes that he's come all the way past the nation of Israel into the church age. And when he speaks, people are going to listen. You know why? Because he's got some experience. Experience is absolutely key. Now, you see, he said to Timothy, he says about Timothy, he says, let no man despise thy youth. Young people have the strength, but Apollos had the experience. Now, i got to tell you, in ministry, these kind of guys, male and female, are absolutely, uh, they're invaluable. They really are. And all of you young men and young ladies, in time, if you stay the course, you'll grow right into an Apollos. There's a process that you go from being a Timothy, which there's nothing wrong with, into Apollos, which there's nothing wrong with, but it's the natural process. Because I'm going to tell you, as valuable as the Timothys are, and they really are, they're like the spark plugs of the, en of the engine. They make it fire. But the Apollos are the gas that make it run. And it takes everything together. You can't make an engine run without the spark plugs. You can have all the gas in the world. You have no spark plugs. You have all the spark plugs in the world and have no gas and it isn't going to run. It takes a combination of both. 
But guys and gals like Apollos are absolutely invaluable because they're older. You see, in the ministry, I learned very quickly, you got to learn where your bread is buttered, so to speak, as the saying goes. If I have a deep issue that I've got to deal with, whether it's in the church or whether it's with somebody and, uh, you know, I got to make a decision or we have to do something and deal with something uh, that may have bad aftershocks or ramifications that may uh, cause some, uh, some riffles, you know, and I, or some big decision that has to be made. Somebody comes down and, you know, and says something that we got to do this, or we got to do that, or we got to change this. Uh, I know exactly in this church who I'm going to sit down with and get their advice because the apologists, the apologists uh, of any church are absolutely incredible. This ministry is no different than Paul's ministry. And he has to have people in it who have heat. That's the young people. He needs to have people who have light. And he has to have people who have experience. And you're going to find in his writings, throughout his writings, he makes reference to these people over and over and over again. They are three people here that represent three people groups that are, that are absolutely invaluable to him, and he makes no bones about telling people in the books that he writes to them how important they are. And you got Timothy, who's got the fire, Timothy, who he's teaching, who's gleaning everything he can from, from Paul, his father in the Lord, and he's getting him up and getting him ready to go, but then he's got guys like Apollos who have been there, who has, has the longevity of seeing the perspective of it all that Timothy didn't have, and he see, you see how invaluable they are. I mean, it's, a, it's just like any church needs to be, and that's how it works. And it's a thing where uh, you, you, you see it. Now, the next people he talks about uh, is a couple. And their name is Aquila and Priscilla. Now this couple, hey, is there, if you're a young couple here in this church, this is a great model for you. And yet when's the last time you heard a sermon on Aquila and Priscilla? They are one of the, but the last time you heard one on Apollos. They are, two of the, they, they are two of the greatest studies you will take in the Bible if you want a model for ministry uh, no matter where you're at. If you're a young person, the model for you is Timothy. If you're a middle-aged guy or gal, then your model is, is, is uh, Apollos. If you're somebody who's married, no matter where you're at, it's, it's Aquila and Priscilla. And boy, I'll tell you what, this is a, this is a special couple. They really are. They really are. Paul makes reference to them in five different books that he writes. I mean, he may talk about this guy or this guy once or twice, but when it comes to Aquila and Priscilla, they're all over the place. And we can learn a lot about them. And, you know, just studying their life, you say, I didn't even know their life was in the Bible. I know you didn't, but I'm telling you, it is. You can piece it together. I'm going to piece it together for you in a little bit here. Not the whole thing, but enough to show you where you go. Acts chapter 18, verse 2. <clears throat> it tells us that they are Jews that originally come from Italy. Now watch this. That means that <clears throat> back in 606 B.C., their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather or whoever left Jerusalem, wound up in Italy. They stayed true to the Old Testament. <clears throat> They're Jews living in the dispersion of 606, and now here we are 400 years later, they wind up in Italy. But watch this. It also tells you in that passage that Claudius, he's the Roman, Roman guy. He's the bad guy. He's the villain. <clears throat> Claudius 
passes a decree to deport all the Jews. They all got to leave Italy. And so they leave. And when they leave, lo and behold, they run into Paul. Now, let me just stop there a moment and and show you how another Bible principle fits in, because most of you can probably relate to this. Now, if it had been you and me in Italy, and we suddenly got the bad word from bad Obama Claudius that we all had to leave Missouri, in their case, Italy, that he was getting rid of all the Christians or all the Republicans or all the blondes in, uh, in Missouri. And we'd all think it was a terrible thing. We'd think, well, we're going to lose our house. We're going to lose our, we're going to lose our friends. We're going to lose all of this. We're going to lose all of that. Boy, this is terrible. A lot like Christians whine and complain today about our present government. I want you to see this. It was Claudius who was an unsaved man, but it was Claudius is who God used to get them out of Italy that through him forcing them out, they met Paul. In other words, if it wasn't for Claudius kicking them out of Italy, they never would have lined up with Paul. Romans 8, 28 says all things work together for good. Because we look at some tragedy in our life where we're going to do this or I lost my job or I did this. Hey, look. Hey, I'm not saying God didn't take your job or didn't put you through some hard time because you got, you're an idiot and you got to learn some things. But we also know that there's times when God will make moves in our lives to get us where he wants us to be, to be with uh, who he wants us to be, that we would never get there if he didn't do that. You got to see that. And you got to remember that next time something changes in your life. It's just that simple. That's how God does. Oh, Claudius really here is painted as the villain. He's the hero that God used. And they go down and they leave Rome. And lo and behold, they run into Paul. My, 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 what a coincidence. Now, that's not all. The next verse, Acts 18, 3 says that both of them uh, enjoy the same occupation. They're both tent makers, tent menders, Paul and Aquila. So here's Paul down here, and we know this from Paul, that that's how he supported himself. He went to town to town. He repaired tents or he made tents, and uh, that's how he supported himself, and then he started churches. So here, after God gets them out of Rome and gets them down where uh, they meet into Paul, They both have the same occupation. They're both tent makers. So they form a little bond there. And my, 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 I wonder what happens from that point on. See how God does those things? Now, maybe you're not paying attention in your life. Maybe you're not paying attention around here. But I see that working all the way around here. Jim and Marcy Clark. I love Jim and Marcy Clark. And Jim and Marcy Clark are two of the finest people in our church. And I, I, I love them. Uh, always willing to help, always willing. Do you ever hear the story how Jim and Marcy Clark came to this church? It's a lot like right here. Some of you were there that night. I don't remember who you were, but I remember the movie went, excuse me, I remember the film we went to see. (laughs) We went to see the Christian film, Flags of Our Fathers. Who went that night? Are you here this morning? You went that night? Good. Some of you went that night. Okay. We went to see Flags of Our Fathers, which is a, Uh, a great story what everybody ought to see about Ira Hayes. Ira Hayes was one of the Marines who lifted the flag on Iwo Jima that's on the sculpture that you always see so familiar. 
and he died a drunken. He was an Indian, and he died a drunk. Terrible, tragic story, but a great story. And uh, it was a story that, uh, that was, uh, was an incredible, incredible story. And we're coming out of the movie that night. By the way, uh, the night before Thanksgiving, we always say, I'm telling you, another one out we all got to go see. If you want to get it, it's J. Edgar. I'm telling you right now. I read his biography a number of years ago, one of the, one of the most unique scenarios that explains why we, things are the way they are today. J. Edgar, meaning J. Edgar Hoover. And uh, most of you don't even know who he is. You think he made the dam out there in Colorado. No, that was another Hoover, you know. And he didn't make vacuum cleaners either. But uh, it's an incredible thing. And uh, I'm going to go see it. And it's a thing where, because he, I was alive when he was alive. And uh, when he died, he was buried in, a, in a, an 800-pound uh, lead coffin. In fact, the guys, the military guys that were carrying him up the, the rotunda, he's the only guy outside of a president that, at that point, anyhow, had laid in state. I mean, he'd been through five presidents as the head of the FBI. And his casket was so heavy because it was laden with lead that two of the soldiers suffered hernias just carrying it up there. The reason why it was laden in lead is because he was afraid that the communists, who he hated with a passion, uh, would, when they bombed America with the atomic bombs, and I don't really understand his reasoning here, that the radiation would not penetrate his coffin. Like, hello, you're dead anyhow. I mean, uh, what the radiation won't do, the maggots will. <laughs> I guarantee you. But anyway, he was an eccentric guy. But anyway, that's off the subject here. We were out there, and we went to see Flags of Our Fathers. And this is when uh, Jim and Marcy's dad, uh, Marcy's dad was still alive. And he was, a Marine, he was in the Marine during World War II. Incredible guy. And uh, I've got to talk with him uh, uh, many, many times. Marcy, some of you saw it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Marcy uh, uh, found the Japanese, uh, they called it a band of a thousand stitches that he had taken off a Japanese soldier that he killed on Guadalcanal. And the band of a thousand stitches was that uh, back home while the war was going on, the Japanese women uh, uh, made these belts and it was made uh, with people sewing, and they put had a, actually had, I think she said this one has 1,100 stitches. It had to have 1,000 stitches. And that was to protect you in battle, and they wore them around as a belly band under the uniforms. And uh, they're very, very rare, uh, a real one. And uh, he shot a guy, it didn't work for this guy, shot the guy on Guadalcanal, I think she said, and uh, brought home his belly band. It got blood all on it and everything. But, uh, you know, he was a Marine, and so uh, very patriotic. And as they are, she works for the Veterans Administration. So, and Jim was in the Marine Corps. So they were there that night seeing it for the second time. We went to see it because we wanted to go see it. And I just happened to have that night, I wore no planning, just wore a, a hoodie with the uh, army across the front. So we're walking out of the theater. And we're sitting there like we always do, deciding where we're going to eat and talking about it. And her dad came over to me, shook my hand and said, uh, what movie did you see? And I said, and he had a Marine Corps hat on, and I said, we went to see Flags of Our Father. I said, well, you and we started a conversation. Well, then Jim and Marcy came over, talked to all of us, found out that I was a pastor, found out that we were all from the same church, found out that we go to films, found out that, you know, we're very patriotic, very militaristic in our mindset and everything. And you know what? That was on a Saturday night, I think it was. They were in church, came to visit our church the next Sunday morning, and have been here ever since. You see? God uses the circumstances of life to put people in your life to connect you because you got what they're looking for 
and he just got to orchestrate the events just like he did with Aquila and Priscilla and Paul. He had to get them out of there, so he got Claudius to deport them all. They go down and they run into Paul. They're both tent makers. They're both there. The only reason it went that way and doesn't go our way is because they didn't have movie theaters back there. I mean, I, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I've seen that all my life. All my life. I remember uh, Sonny and Sheila. Somebody invited you to come to play softball. You came, you came to softball that Saturday night. You came to church the next Sunday morning, and you have been here ever since. And I don't know what to tell you. That's how we got Raphael and Georgie. They came somebody else. Somebody invited you to come, came one time, played ball or whatever you did. Maybe it was the crap game afterward. I'm not sure what you got you here, but you, you came and been here ever since. That's my point. My point is God wants to do that with your life. You see, these are the things you learn. I mean, you read Apollos and Aquila and Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla, and you're through it in 30 seconds, and, or if that, and then you, you think there's nothing there. You're out of your mind. You've got to learn how to glean from those things. Once you see what Paul is doing and how he's doing it, then stop and ask yourself, well, maybe there's more to this. Let me see who's really important in his world and why. And then you learn things like that. Hey, I'm telling you. I'm just telling you. I've seen it all my life. That's how God does it, if you let him. Now, that's not all. In Acts chapter 18, verse 26, these people really know their Bible. That one, And I love their boldness. And yet, I mean... I read every word in the Bible. I think every word is important. And I think the way God says things in the Bible is really important. And I love what he says here because it says something about them as a couple. They were bold enough to deal with him. But look what else it says. Let me go back and read it. I got the note here, but I want to read it and it's exactly here. It says this. Verse 26, and he began to speak boldly in the synagogue whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, watch it very carefully, they took him unto them. Now, you know what that means to me? That means they they didn't chew him out and send him on his way. It means they took him in. It means they saw the potential in him. They realized because they were what, guys? Oh, we didn't learn nothing yesterday, did we? They were what, guys? That's very good, but that's not what I want. They were what, guys? Let me ask the ladies. They were what, ladies? <sighs> they were smarter than the problem. They were smarter than the problem. They were smarter than the problem. And, you know, they, they, they didn't beat him up. The Bible says they, they saw who he was, they saw how much of the Bible he knew, and they saw the fervent by which he spoke and the love that he had for God, so the Bible says they took him unto them. They spent some time with him. You certainly don't think they just took him out of there in a the hallway and explained the whole revelation of Christ's coming and then sent him on his way and he got it straight, do you? No, they took him unto them. They adopted him. They took, they took charge of him. They helped him. And because of that, 
you know, he got his doctrine straightened out all because they had their doctrine straightened out. They not only had the Bible down and had it straight, but they had the grace and the discernment and the discretion to know how to use it. I like this couple. Romans 16.3 says that uh, Paul says that he's, he's, uh, that they're his helper in Christ. And then he goes on to make an incredible statement in 16.3. He says, Quill and Priscilla, who have for my life laid down their own necks. See, they, they had a relationship with Paul. Paul trusted them. They had Paul's heart, Paul's vision. They understood exactly what he's trying to do, and they're in up to their eyeballs. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19, Paul makes mention of them again in connection with Timothy. And here we see that in some way, shape, or form, they're hooked up with him. And finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19, and this is our text today, we find out that Aquila and Priscilla, they have a church in their home. Just like some of you do throughout the week, teaching people the Bible, having them over, couples, individuals, through discipleship, through whatever. You're an extension of this church, and you're holding it in your home, just like they did. You see what I'm saying? You see any similarities at all here? between our church, Paul, you, me, how this thing works? Well, you learn from this passage when Paul's coming down through here, and I think it's quite incredible that he's laying this out right before he gets into the great book that is the handbook of ministry, and he shows you and me that the three institutions that are going to make any church work or the young men and young ladies that got it straight and working through their issues and understand their limitations, the older men and women in the, bi- in, the, in the churches who have the experience of life, and if they can couple that with the Bible, that make them absolutely vital, and then the couples, no matter what age you are, the couples. It's what makes this church fire on all eight cylinders. And yet, you know, I'm telling you right now, and you get this a lot of times, <clears throat> You know, there's no, there's no church that is perfect. Churches are always going to have issues. And because churches are made up with people, Christians, Christians aren't perfect. You hear it all the time. Well, you know what? I, I, they, they don't, nobody's perfect, see? You, you, at, you're looking for a perfect person or a perfect church or a perfect pastor, then you're, at a, you're never going to find it. And, and, and a lot of times you already know that, but you know deep down inside you don't really want to do what's right, so it's easier to blame it on somebody else than it is to deal with your own issues. But I'm telling you right now, get a heads up on this. There are no perfect Christians, there's no perfect churches, and there's no perfect pastors. That's just the way it works. You just got to get that. The question should not be, are they perfect? The question should be, is it real? That ought to be the question. Are they real? Letting God use them and being used by God to do what God wants them to do. I mean, you you look at Paul and follow his life. He wasn't perfect. Nobody is. But that becomes a cop-out. But you see that Paul built churches. He's an evangelist. That's what an evangelist did back then. And he built seven that we actually know of. I'm sure he built thousands. And you can trace it back to every Bible-believing church today on the planet. Started with Paul. But he wrote about seven of them, and through those seven, we get great insight. And we now know that he built his churches around three people groups. Each one of them have a different equal value that when you put it all together, uh, it makes the church work. The blend within ministry that makes it all work together. And that's 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 how he did it. And that's the great model that we have. Now, 
Who brought their fork today? Anybody bringing their fork? You got your fork? Okay. Remember what I told you a couple weeks ago? Save your fork because the best part's coming. Now, got your fork? Here it comes. Do you know what the single thing in this passage is that was the key to Paul's success and the church's success? The single key by which pulled all three of these people together. It's the greatest thing you'll never not see. But it's absolutely incredible. And it's found in verse 15 where he talks about the household of Stephanus. Look at it. Verse chapter uh, 16, verse 15. I beseech you, brethren, you, how you know that the house of Stephanus, that are the first fruits of Archaea, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. That's one of my favorite passages in the Bible on ministry. They have addicted themselves to the ministry. I love that verse. In one single verse, in one verse, it completely knocks the holy glockamole out of everybody out there that tries to tell you that don't be a fanatic about Christianity. How many times do you hear it? You hear it all the time from Christians who don't want to get in over their eyeballs. They want to stay and just stay in a kind of a nicey-nicey world. They don't want to make anybody mad. So they're always telling other people, now don't become a, don't become a, don't become a fanatic now. Don't get in it too deep. Don't, don't, don't go off the deep end. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to do that. You know, no, no, I, I would tell you, I'd be the first one to agree. You never want to become a fanatic for Jesus Christ. You want to become an addict. You know, all the new Bibles do with that word addiction. They change it to devotion. See, doesn't that sound nice? I'm sure that every child of God that you ever found in your life, as worldly as they are, would tell you, I am devoted to Christ. That's not the question. Are you addicted to Christ? Next time the cop pulls you over and you got a marijuana cigarette and he smells it in the back and he says, are you addicted to drugs? You say, no, I'm just devoted to him. (laughs) 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 See how it works for you. (laughs) Oh, I'll tell you what. You see, the word addiction is too extreme. Doesn't it sound nice that we're all devoted to Christ? It's just kind of got a tacky taste in your mouth that you're addicted to Christ. That's way too extreme. Yet the truth of the matter is we all have an addiction of some sort, don't we? Some people have drug addictions. Some people have addiction to alcohol. Some people have addiction to cigarettes, pornography. Some people have addiction to sports, golf, hunting, fishing, gambling, food. And then some people just have an addiction to themselves. We call them drama queens, don't we? Well, there's drama kings too. Don't kid yourself. You know? And wherever you go in life, the spotlight always comes down and focuses on your problems and where you're at. If you've done any work with drug or alcohol abusers, you see uh, the real meaning of the word addiction. Uh, You you don't have to go to a a, a Bible dictionary to look it up. The real meaning of addiction is it totally controls you. You can't go one hour without a cigarette. You can't go one hour without a fix. You can't go one hour without a beer. I've known people that all my life, I've seen them. I've known them for years. Every time you see them, they got a drink in their hand. I've seen people go to the fact that they have to, they uh, really uh, bad. They can't go, they can't go an hour without a cigarette. I mean, it's, it's, it, you, know what, you know what alcoholic means? When you break the word down, 
It's really the key word to all of this. Alcohol, alcoholic, alcoholic, holic, holy, alcoholic. To reverse the words like you do when you put words together, alcoholic is somebody that's holy, holic, given to alcohol. That's addiction. That's exactly what it is. Now let me say on the text we're reading here, God doesn't need any more devoted people. He got enough of those. He wants addicted people. He wants you addicted to the ministry. You know, our society, our society, both religious and secular, recognize the terrible tragedy of, of some of these addictions. And, uh, you know, they've got uh, centers where you can go if you're, a, uh, you know, uh, you, uh, that you can go to. If you're a drug addiction, you can get out of it, alcohol. Uh, they even have halfway houses. Why well, The Restart program we're at. It has a facility for that, as does the City Union Mission that we're at, as, as I'm sure every mission does. And then if that's not your bag, then you go to Alcoholics Anonymous, and they'll dry you out. You go to Narcotics Anonymous. You go to Gamblers Anonymous. You know, it, it only shows me the stupidity that the addiction to drugs and alcohol and gambling and everything else, but those three are what really destroys people's lives. And then this stupid government of ours wants to think around and talk about, well, maybe we ought to legalize marijuana. Like, we don't know that marijuana is the gateway to every other drug there is. Like, well, we'll solve the problem with with, uh, drug abuse by legalizing marijuana. Yeah, and you'll, 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 solve, the, you'll solve the problem of, 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 of everything else just by giving them more of what they need that they're going to do with it. And that's exactly the way it's, it is. It's just solely screwed up in everything that we do. But I've got to tell you something. I appreciate Alcoholics Anonymous. I've used them many, many times with people I'm working with. I, I went through the course myself. Not that I've never had a drink in my life, but I, I felt like I needed to know it. Our Narcotics Anonymous, too, went through that. The 12-step program. And, um, and I, it was a thing where I think that uh, I, I've used them all when I'm working with people. I don't think they have the complete answer, but they can sure help in the process. But I've also come aware that just like society wants to break addictions uh, and have halfway houses, i got news for you. If you ain't figured this out yet, the devil's got a halfway house too. And his halfway house is to get God's people to break the addiction of ministry. And most of God's people are in that halfway house. I promise you. I promise you. Now you look at Timothy, Apollos, and Aquila and Priscilla. See, they are what makes a ministry work. And this is why the reason Paul talks about them. They are addicted. They are addicted to the ministry. You know the philosophy of 99.999% of the churches, why they fail today? And just because somebody has 20,000 people coming to their services doesn't mean that it's a success. Old Mel told me years and years ago, one of the wisest things he ever said when somebody was talking about somebody had 10,000 in church. He said, just because you have 10,000 in, 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 uh, 10, people show up doesn't mean it's a church. And boy, that is so true. <clears throat> but the reason why churches fail today <clears throat> is because they divide themselves against themselves. And they never tap into the greatest resource they have. I learned this probably 35 years ago. One of the single greatest things I ever learned. And I followed it consistently all of my life. You have youth, young singles. You have young married. You have older couples. You have 
jolly 60s. Knock it off, not a word by anybody. You have all these groups. Now, when you go to most churches, they're all divided out. They have what they call a Sunday school classes. And they have Sunday school classes for the groups. Sunday school classes are not in the Bible. I'm not in argument with them. But some Baptist preachers, they've looked at our church and they've said, when do you have, do you have Sunday school? And, I know, and they turn up their nose like, you know, we're denied the virgin birth or something. <laughs> and they don't even know that Sunday schools weren't even started until in the 1800s. They don't even know who started it. Robert Rankin started it in England for the purpose that he started it. And you know what? I'm not against it, but I'll tell you what Sunday school classes do. They divide up your church into social groups. And I think what happens when your church gets divided up into social groups, and I understand the reasoning behind it. An 18-year-old doesn't really have anything in common with a 60-year-old. See? Socially. <clears throat> I mean, Jim and Marcy Clark are not going to slide into home plate and save the ball game for us when we play softball. They're just not. And Harry's mom and Aunt Pam and Penny, who are not here today, they're sick. They're not going to be the anchors on your volleyball team. They're just not going to. So I understand what they're saying. But you see, the problem is, in the social circles, when your primary goal is to get them all socially diced up, you lose one of the greatest aspects that he's talking about here. Maybe an 18-year-old and a 60-year-old have nothing together for flag football with Kyle on Saturday afternoon. But an 18-year-old and a 60-year-old have very much in common when it comes down to ministering to people. Because ministry knows no social barrier. Ministry doesn't know Penny back here and, uh, and Pam. They can't, uh, they can't go down to restart. They can't do what everybody else does. But I guarantee you they found a, they found a place in ministry of just finding people that are missing or finding people that are sick and passing out and go and get the cards at their own expense and sending them out and telling them they're praying for them. See what I'm saying? In other words, when all you focus on is the social, that's all you get done. I've learned that when you don't focus and make the number one focus of your church social things, you make it ministry, the ministry gets done because everybody, no matter what your age is, can work together in ministry and the social things take care of themselves. That's just the way it works. Most churches are so busy dividing up their social groups, they just divide themselves completely out of the equation. And you're going to find that Timothy's a young man, Paulus is an older man, and Aquila Priscilla, they're a married couple. And how many times have we said, well, we can't let the married couples hang out with the singles because it just doesn't work. It doesn't work if you're going to have fun, but it works if you're going to minister. You see, when your idea in your mind about your church is social events and what you're going to do, then you're never going to get the ministry. When your goal is not those things and ministry and everybody understands that God saved you for a reason, he saved you for a purpose, and we can all minister together, whether it be at Restart, whether it be at the mission, you can pass out hot dogs and pass out tracks if you're 60, 70, 80, 90, or 20. And some of the older folks, some of the older couples, some of the older people have much more experience that when you hang out with the younger ones, you can blend along. But when you chop it all up, crazy. But that's the lay of the sea in church, see? I watched down there at the first time at the restart when they went in. I actually, when we were going down there, 
I think it's the greatest thing that in one form or the other, everybody in this church. I've actually saw the other day where people, when I was down there, didn't go over to them, didn't say anything to them because I knew what was going on. They're over in a corner weeping because they're, 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 they're moved by what God has done for them and where they're at and what they have. And the contrast to what these people don't have is overwhelming to you. Because it puts it all in perspective. We whine and complain about what we don't have and what we don't like. But when you go down there, you see something. I watched a woman put on a used coat that was that she wanted a coat. And she put on a coat and the coat would not even fit. It wouldn't even get closed. She couldn't even button it. And she was the happiest person in the world because she got a new coat. Give me a break. That made her day when for you and for me, everything has to be exactly the way it has to be. I saw some of you guys down there the first couple of times we went that a guy didn't have a jacket. You took the jacket off you were wearing and gave it to him. Never said a word, but I understand those things. There's something about getting into the real world where we're oblivious to that you see what people don't have that makes you appreciate and makes you feel so foolish for what you do have and how we look at it. By the way, one of the big needs that we need this time coming up is socks and underwear, but just don't be doing the same thing with the underwear we were doing with the jackets. Okay, guys, just buy them something else. Got to tell you people everything because you'll be doing it. I know you guys. If you do, please wear two pair. <laughs> you see, God didn't save us. God didn't make this church or any other church to be a social station. He just didn't. Because God knows human nature. And when you focus everything you do around the social events, you never get the ministry. You just never get there. Because you, you divide your resources up. You say, well, the young singles, they got to stay over here. And the young married, they got to stay here. And they're over here and everybody over here. And they just don't have anything in common. No, they don't as far as playing softball. But you sure do when it comes to winning people to Christ and getting into the ministry. And when you get into the ministry and you focus on that, the social things take care of themselves. And it's just that simple. But most guys never that smart. They never get to that point. And that's the key to any success. That's the key to any success we would have. When your emphasis is on the social, you never accomplish the ministry because you're dividing yourself right out of the ministry. And when your goal is ministry, everybody works together and gets addicted to the ministry, no matter what you are or how old you are, or what your status is or your social areas or your social class, you just take case, take care of the people who need the help and it's a natural process and everything else works it out. That's why so many of God's people are so worried about the friends they have or they don't have or the social things they get invited to or they don't get invited to and they never stop one time thinking about the people out there that don't have anybody or anything. Some of the closest friends I've got in my life are people when I met God allowed me to minister to them. And you want to bake some friends? Start taking somebody that has no friends and giving out to them. You that are strong, bought the barely infirmities of the week and ministering to them. You'll get some friends. You'll get some good friends. I got some. The common bond that pulls us together and keeps us together is people working in ministry with other people. I've told you many, many times. Sabaka told me 35, 40 years ago, only two things worth investing your life in 
Because it's the only two things going to last for eternity. One of them is the Word of God, the other one is the souls of men. Everything else is just a waste of time. Got to put it in perspective. You see, I believe today, God's people today, they suffer from a tragic case of mistaken identity. I really do. Who they really are. Not who they are in Christ, but that too, but who they are in this world. Jesus said, and I'm paraphrasing now, we have to lose ourselves to find ourselves. And what we really have to do is drop this false self-created image that we all got. That we have that we can do nothing for God care nothing about the things of God, do nothing for God, and still in our mind think we're okay with God. That image of ourselves that's built around us, ourselves, not others, is based on our own ego, our own mindset, that it is so easy to adapt to our lazy culture of Christianity. It's a pretense. It's a bogus identity. It's a self-styled, self-righteous identity that has no room for real ministry in people. Most of God's people on the outside look like a brand new, spanking, shiny Corvette, a Chevy Corvette. But when you look around, it's great. And it's absolutely beautiful on the inside. When you open the hood, somebody stole the motor. Somebody stole your motor. You look great and shiny and sparkly on the outside, but you're not going anywhere and you're not doing anything because somebody stole your motor. Somebody told you not to become a fanatic. Somebody, somebody put you in the wrong halfway house. And it will be true in any ministry anywhere that those three people groups who through a common bond of understanding what Christ did for them on the cross and then together collectively addicting themselves and becoming addicts to the ministry of Jesus Christ. I mean, it blows my mind how some of God's people can go a day without reading their Bible, weeks or months maybe, how some of God's people can go a day without talking to their Heavenly Father. How some of God's people can live their whole lives, feel nothing, no conviction about their, 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 their fake walk with God and the fact that God saved them to serve and there's nothing, no souls, no ministry, no nothing, no depth. Isn't it a shame that we can go a whole day without talking to Him or reading our Bible and some of us can't go an hour without a cigarette? I'm telling you where the addiction is and where the addiction isn't. Oh, Rachel back there in the Old Testament who was barren and she's a great picture of the nation of Israel, one of the greatest verses in the Bible. She comes back there and she cries out. She says, give me children lest I die. That ought to be your prayer. Give me souls lest I die. No, give me a beer. Yet those same people will tell you, don't become a fanatic now. Well, now you know too clearly that that's a lie. It's clear now that just as uh, the drugs and the alcohol and a gambler who has lost everything. Uh, God wants you addicted to him so you can lose everything. I mean, that's the way it works. I mean, there's not a lot of difference when you lay it out between uh, the world's addictions and God's addictions. Somebody says, well, drugs alter your mind when you get addicted to them. They do. They do. But when you get addicted to the word of God, it'll alter your mind too. See? Somebody says, well, he's addicted to alcohol. Yeah, in the old world, he used to call those spirits. In fact, you still see it when you drive down past the liquor store, spirits. Yeah, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 says, And be not drunk with wine, where is in excess, but be you filled with the Spirit. In other words, he's saying, don't get drunk on the world stuff, get drunk on God's stuff. You see, a saved man doesn't really quit drinking. Got to know that. A saved man doesn't really quit drinking. A saved man just changes bottles. 
And a saved man doesn't, doesn't stop being an addict or having an addiction. <laughs> he just changes addictions. And you and I should look and act just like a drunk. You and I should look and act as God's people. I mean, did you ever see the similarities between the two? They're incredible. I mean, did you ever study the five characteristics that drunks and addiction, people with addictions have, uh, is in connection with you and me? One's an addiction to the world. The other one's an addiction to the, to the ministry. The first thing, uh, uh, somebody, when you drink and you're addicted to alcohol and you're drunk all the time, you see them all the time. When they get drunk, you know the first thing they, 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 you see about them? How bold they are. I've seen a 100-pound guy try to take on a 250-pound biker because the alcohol made him bold. Where he would put his tail between his legs before in meekness. When the guy said something to him, he shoots his mouth right off back now and just tells him where it's at. Gets killed in the process, but there's a boldness. See, you, just, you say things you wouldn't normally say. And when you get piled into the Word of God and you become addicted to the ministry, you have a boldness about you that you'll say things that right now you're not willing to say. You'll say something to somebody. You'll say something to somebody about the Lord. Right now you're afraid. You see, but when you get the alcohol in you, it kind of loses your whole perspective of things, and uh, you get this false boldness that now you're really a big guy. You're only five foot three and 110 pounds, but in your mind, you're now six foot ten and you're Hulk Hogan. <laughs> well, when you get God's addiction in your life, you still may be five foot ten and 110 nothing, but you got the Lord Jesus Christ, the Rock of Ages, inside you, and you can stand up to everything. See? Now, I'll tell you something else. You ever seen a drunk? Somebody addicted to alcohol? I've seen them all my life. I'll tell you something else that they, they can't do. Can't keep their mouth shut. They're always singing. Always singing. We're talking about drowned out your sorrows. Always happy-go-lucky. Nothing bothers them. 99 bottles of beer in the wall. 99 bottles of beer in the wall. Know what? Know what? Whatever. You know, they're, you're all, they're always happy. You're always happy-go-lucky. Ever been to Germany over there sometime? A couple of times I went to Germany. I went down to just to see it for an example. You ever been to an Austria house? That's a beer hall. You walk into that place and it's probably five times bigger than this hole downstairs. There's got to be four or five thousand people down there. There's women running up and down. I mean, their beer over there is what, 18% alcohol? I mean, it's killer. And there's a little, these little mugs you got down here, and them suckers are that big. Most of the guys bring their own. They don't bring their bottle, they bring their own mug. And I walked in that place one night, and, I always went, and I'm telling you what, you talk about a rocking place. There were 4,000 people swinging back and forth, singing in German, and holding their buttons up, and everybody's hands on everybody, hugging everybody, beer slopping everywhere. They were the happiest crowd in the whole wide world. And I thought to myself, you know what? That's exactly what every church ought to be when they get drunk on the Spirit of God instead of the spirits of this world. I'm telling you. I'll tell you something else. You take a guy when he gets drunk. You take a guy when he gets uh, convicted to alcohol. I'll tell you what else it'll do. Not only does he have a boldness, and not only can he not keep his mouth shut and he's always singing, but it affects his walk. You see, a drunk guy who gets drunk in the world can't walk straight. Guy gets drunk on the Word of God can't walk crooked. I'll tell you something else they're always doing, too. <laughs> every drunk I ever saw in my life, every alcoholic I ever saw that was addicted to that stuff, they always want to share their bottle. 
I'm telling you. I mean, they're just, uh, you know, they, I, I, I've been in places where they don't even know people. Somebody comes up and says, hey, how you doing? All right, fish bite? Not fish not biting very good. Here, have one of these. I've seen them, I mean, pass out beer like it was, not like it was, like it was tracks. That's the word I'm looking for. Well, I, 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 it'll be five drunks and one bottle of whiskey, and they'll pass that thing around, and somebody will drain the last drop out of it. You know why? Because when you're addicted to alcohol, you share what you got. And when you're addicted to Christianity in the ministry, you share what you got. See? They pass out, here, have one of these. Want a cold one? We go down there and say, here, take one, read this. It'll keep you from getting a hot one. Think about it. So, I mean, it's a difference. You're either going to be addicted to the things of the world or you're going to be addicted to the things of God. And when I look at a drunk, somebody's addicted to the spirits of this world, I see a lot of similarities of what you and I ought to be when we get addicted to the spirit of God. You ought to have that boldness. You ought to never keep your mouth shut. You ought to have the joy, 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 joy down in your heart. It ought to affect your walk. You ought to want to share what you've got to drink. I'll tell you the fifth one. People on alcohol and people that are drunk and people that are addicted, they always need a designated driver. You see, you just run yourself into the ditch. You need somebody driving you home to heaven. It's the Lord. Because when you're an addict, when you're addicted to alcohol, boy, you drive, you'll drive yourself right into a disaster. I saw a bumper sticker one time in a car that said, based on the famous a flying tiger guy, I forget his name at this particular point in time, in China with the uh, flying tigers, and it says, he wrote a book and also made a movie, but on a bumper sticker it says, God is my co-pilot. Now that looks neat, doesn't it? But I got some news for you. God doesn't want to be the co-pilot. That just means you're still driving the plane, and we know where that's going to lead. No, no, when you get saved, you're like every drunk when he has too much to drink and you get excess of the Spirit of God, the first thing you do is turn over your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, let him drive the bus, let him get you home. Similarities are the same. The gambler, he'll put his faith in a game of chance and lose everything. The addicted child of God puts his faith in the eternal absolute word of God and winds up losing everything anyhow because he gives it up. So we sing, I surrender all. The Bible says if you want to keep it, you've got to give it away. The Bible says he that loses his life shall find it. And Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, but, but what things were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them as dung that I may win Christ. Now, brother, there's a fanatic right there. There's an addicted man right there. Gamblers go out the boats, they lose everything they have. They put away their house payment, their car payment, the kids' college fund. They lose every dime they got, go out and borrow more money, and then lose more money. They, and they wind up losing everything that they have. And a child of God, once you get addicted to the ministry, you realize you've got to give up everything you got. I guess it's just whatever addiction you're going to put yourself to. So we see these three people groups here, and wow, wow, who would have thought we'd ever got that out of a farewell chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 16? You do when you look at what he's saying. So we see the three people groups that make Paul's ministry a work of God. And we see the exact same three people groups that will make any work 
whether it be this church or any other church, when the main emphasis is not friends, fellowship, fun, get-togethers, weenie rows, hot dogs, and all the things that go along, but those are fine, but the main emphasis has to be ministry. And the thing that pulls the Timothys, the Apollos, and the Aquila and Priscilla's together is that all roads of fellowship lead to ministry, and ministry leads to a being addicted to it. You not being, me and you not being able to go a day without being involved in ministry to some degree. You know, we all get used to things in our life, and those things become part of our life. It's a lot like running. Runners who run a lot will tell you that running becomes such a part of their life that uh, when you get sick and you have to take two or three days off from running, it just messes up your whole world. We all have things like that. And yet, the thing that we ought to not be able to live without is the aspect of ministry. And the key to getting that way is now that you know for sure what Paul says is to become addicted to the ministry. And now you know. Everybody has a model. You young guys, gals, you have a model now. You know what it is. You middle people who are in your Apollos age groups, you know exactly where it's at. You couples, you now know how valuable all three of you are to the work of God. But now you also know the thing that pulls it all together. That's addiction. If you're not addicted to the ministry, you will be addicted to something else. It might be yourself, but you will be addicted to something else. It's just that simple. So I leave it with that, looking at what God has given us. Next week, we'll talk about the five charges that he gives this church that will set us up for going into the greatest book on ministry, where we're at right now, and that is the book of 2 Corinthians. So let's pray. If you're going to